everybody. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Fireside if this is your first time. Um, and welcome back to everybody who, who always is here. Um, I'm Suzanne Vandevisser, and I'm really thankful to be here this morning. I have to mention last Sunday, Easter, marked 16 years since I personally came back to faith. Anytime I talk or share about anything, or about my faith, my life, I feel like there's a disclaimer that needs to be behind me on the screen. And I'll tell you what the disclaimer would say if, there were to have, if I were to have one. It would say, this is not me. You should have seen me when I wasn't walking with God. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Well, not exactly rock and roll. It's like fish and the dead and stuff for those offshoots, but you get the point. I want to make sure that people know that God and his Holy Spirit do the work. He goes ahead of us. It's our jobs to listen, follow, and act. It's all there for us in the Bible. Love God and love people. It's a living, breathing book that tells us just how big we should dare to hope, how much we should sacrifice, how little we should worry. I want to share today my personal experience of how sacrifice leads to deep contentment how saying scary yeses can actually help us feel the safest. I want to stand in front of you as someone who has been delivered from great shame and guilt and has been radically saved. Any and all fruit of my labor is because of Christ in me. Will you pray with me? Lord, let me articulate what you've helped me discern as I've planned to share today. We are here this morning as your body. Convict us in the places where we need conviction. Give us ears to hear you and endurance to do your work in both the mundane and hardest areas of our lives and in this world. Last Sunday, I was on my fourth and final week with the kids as the director. And I had felt someone in, somewhat indifferent about it being Easter for multiple reasons, even though this is understandably one of the more sacred holidays for me. The miracle of Jesus dying for me, me, you, Gross, wretched, very fickle, and valuable people. It wasn't hitting me the same way last year as it did, last week, sorry, as it did in years past. As I was getting ready to come here, one of my best friends um, sent me a devotional while I was literally wrestling one of my kids into a dress shirt. <laughs> as I listened, my heart and all of its hard edges created by stress and fatigue and overwhelm started to soften, and I just wept when I heard the following. We set the scene, right? We all know the Easter scene. The women have come to Jesus' tomb. The stone is rolled away, and an angel is talking to them. Mark 16, 7 says, Go, tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, the devotion went in a slightly different direction than what God um, was kind of downloading for me. The author talked about how Jesus wasn't back to prove to all those who killed him and mocked him, like, hey, I'm alive, I told you so, take that, you know. He spent 50 days with his disciples. The part that doubled me over was that the angel specifically said, go tell the disciples and Peter, Peter, who denied him three times just a few days before, Peter same guy was so fired up and defensive of Jesus that he cut a guy's ear off. Peter, who proudly and adamantly declared that he loved Jesus more than all the other disciples. This is the same Peter who walked on water with Jesus. He also is the same Peter who doubted in the middle of the water 
and took his eyes off Jesus and sunk like a stone. What a track record. (laughs) What more does he need? Here, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he specifically wants Peter to know he's alive again. That is grace. That's unimaginable. Jesus is not looking out and seeking Peter to tell him he told him so. He also doesn't let him off the hook, though. He asks him three questions. In John 21, 15 through 17, we read this exchange. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. The third time he asked Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked this question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. This passage in its original language better depicts the subtle difference in the questions Jesus is asking Peter. So what's really happening? Jesus initially asked Peter if he loves him sacrificially more than these. Remember, Peter just said he loved Jesus more than everybody else did. So Jesus is like, do you? Do you love me more? Jesus is using the word agape for this type of love, which is the all-encompassing, unselfish, complete type of love. Remember what Peter had said. Now, instead of dressing the comparison, Peter answers by claiming his love for Jesus as a friend, not agape love. After denying Jesus, there was no way he could claim anything more than that. Jesus then drops the comparison and asks Peter again if he loves him sacrificially with agape love. Peter sticks to his claim of friend love. With his third question, Jesus drops the level of love down to Peter's and there's a match. Jesus will start working on us whatever level of love we have for him, but he does demand humility, which is what Peter displays. Jesus is making Peter examine his own heart. He asked three times, as Peter had denied him three times. He's also commissioning Peter to do his work here. Many of you know the makeup of our family, um, and for those who don't, I'll try to explain it as simply as I can, um, which is tricky sometimes. Mikhail and I, my husband, met while doing volunteer missions uh, work abroad, and I've always had a slant towards adoption, and the work I did medically as a nurse and later in a children's home in South Africa really cemented that um, dream. Shortly after we got married and returned back to the States for what we thought would be six months or so, I was pregnant. When Mikhail and I grappled with the fact that life wasn't going according to plan, we were also asked to house sit for a family who at the time were legal guardians to a 16-year-old Herbert. As my pregnancy progressed, so did our relationship with Herbert. From the time Bobby, who's now 11, was born, we were already calling Herbert his big brother. He's so much more than a son to us and big brother now to all of our little kids. We were licensed to become a foster parents in the summer of 2015 and our home rapidly and wildly filled, um, completing our family with with the adoption of three siblings. Today, Herbert's 27, Bobby is 11, Alana's eight, Jojo's seven, Nevia's six, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> um, and you might have seen them there. As a foster and, and then adoptive parent, I got to see the inner workings of DCF, which is the Department of Children and Families, and our catchment area, the 13 cities and towns, um, operated for a long time out of Haverhill. Their office is now in Amesbury. We built a lot of great relationships with the social workers, and while sadly I wasn't able to meet and have a relationship with my own children's biological family, I was able to enter into the lives and stories of some other kids who came through our home and their biological families. 
I was regularly surprised in those first years about how wrong many of the stigmas surrounding the world of foster care were. I saw biological families and their children experience so much complex trauma. I saw for myself how hard social workers work, how impossible so many of their decisions seem. When, a story hit the when the story hits the news of a tragedy or loss of a child, the department bears the brunt. Not many can see past this first layer, though. Our laws, our whole judicial system, in this area of our society is fatally flawed. Laws aren't written for children, they're written for adults. Behind every decision, and often dis decisions made against the recommendation of DCF, is a judge and intentionally vague laws. I promise you that our local office social workers are hardworking heroes. The overwhelming majority work tirelessly to protect and serve families at risk and children day in and day out, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. In 2017, myself and two other women decided we wanted to make some official steps towards creating a foster care ministry. Uh, we already had a great relationship with the Haverhill office, and we appreciate how much organizing intentional help for them would benefit many. Many of the women in this room were part of a mom's group with me in these early years um, and are a huge part of supporting this ministry and especially my family personally. Most of them um, can recall holding one of my kids in particular who needed a tight swaddle and constant rocking to calm the 14 hours a day he spent crying. They took turns every Tuesday morning with him. They noticed when I wasn't doing well. They prayed for me. They cooked and delivered endless meals. They came to my house when we briefly cared for my kid's brand new infant sister, temporarily bringing our total number of children under the age of six to five. Naturally, Mikhail was out of town for a trip during the majority of that time um, and that brief insanity. And also two trips to urgent care were required with two separate kids as well. The husband of one of my friends, who's here and knows who he is, was with the friend who was with me, came past the house with his favorite appetizer from the restaurant he had been at for a meeting. I cried over that Korean fried chicken. <laughs> the ministry of feeding people and being fed is holy work. We still laugh regularly at the absurdity of it all. Not only did my family survive those years, we were literally enabled to do what we did because of the work of the church community around us, many of whom are fireside families. These friends in this community still pray and lament for us over the hardest parts of being adoptive parents, navigating the effects of early trauma on young brains. Mikhail and I have never felt alone. Where before we valued community, now we live and breathe it. It's one of our highest priorities. It's what makes life good and helps us see God's love for us through his people. So back to creating this ministry. I'll make a long story short, God was in every detail. Uh, he opened every door and made it as easy as it could have been. As we started casting some vision for ministry, we met and learned more about Fostering Hope New England. They are a nonprofit run by two guys, Jonathan Reed and Mike Brown, um, who are incredible visionaries, work full-time in this nonprofit world, and have a lot of real-life experience in foster care and adoption personally. The vision since 2017 can be summed up in three areas to kind of simplify and, and tell you what we aim to do. We want to support children in foster care, and we want them to be in high-quality, trauma-informed homes. A lot of this work is in recruiting those families and homes so they can be trained and opened to kids in foster care. 
We want to support those foster parents so they don't succumb to the grim fact that 50% of licensed foster homes close in the first year or after their first placement because of lack of support. Um, we call that wraparound support or retention, our second R. And finally, we want to support the local office and create bridges between the local churches and our local area office. We categorize all of these, and this is the third R. So it's recruitment, retention, and relationship. For the last six years, we've worked under the name Fostering Hope Merrimack Valley. Fostering Hope New England is an umbrella, and several other regional networks are also going strong. We are now a network of 10 local churches who fall in our 13-city catchment area for the Haverhill office. The kids and families serve during your town. They're in your kids' school. Their parents work at the places you frequent every day. Since its inception, Fireside has been a regular, integral part of the network of 10 or so churches. In many ways, before it was even officially a church plant, members of Fireside have organically contributed to the success of this ministry through their wraparound support and extreme generosity. I want to show you a few of many things Fireside has helped contribute to so you can just see um, a touch of it and, and learn what we've been able to do. Um, this is, I believe, a slide of our social worker thank you table. Every March we recognize that the social workers are, um, sorry for my poor editing, <laughs> um, our social workers don't get very much recognition. Um, and so in March, we try to very intentionally pour into them and have been for several years. That might be brunches, it could be in-services. Um, we've done a variety of different things. We also support foster parents. There's a basket that we made um, last year for a raffle. So we organize um, foster parent appreciation dinner. In years past, the social workers personally filled in gaps financially and couldn't attend themselves even though they wanted to, to, su to support and just socialize with foster parents. And we asked if we could take it over. And every year, it's, it really becomes a special night. Um, the teenagers in Haverhill, every Christmas had had a Christmas party and there would be like five big ticket raffle items and that was it. So of 70 kids, 80 kids sometimes, five or so would go home with a gift and we thought we could do better than that. Um, and so I think we were in our fourth year, we every year are able to give $7,000 worth of gift cards so that each teen in the Haverhill area gets um, $100 at Christmas. One year, um, on the next slide, we literally had just enough, um, down to like the last dollar. That was the Christmas tree tag, sorry. We've done that at Christmas time for packing backpacks. We partnered with a great organization, Foster and Care, who makes backpacks. It's run by two women who are foster parents and just organizationally are incredible and able to deliver um, backpacks are thoughtfully packaged. Um, they know what each child needs in the first 72 hours of care. And I've been on the receiving end. I have received a child for an overnight with one of these backpacks. It's an incredible full, full circle. <laughs> um, for COVID, we had to do a drive-through Christmas. A few people here were there. Um, it's freezing. Uh, we passed out soup. We passed out cider. We passed out those gift cards, we passed out tickets to the light show in Haverhill. Um, the office fully engages with us. The, the, <laughs> 
The one not dressed up is Chris. He is the director of the Greater Haverhill Area Office, and we work very closely with him. Um, we, we recognize, and the department told us that siblings who are in care and separated is a big focus for them and has been for several years. This got a little bit tricky with COVID, but we were able before that, and we will soon be holding what we call a sibling ties event. And so a lot of kids um, who aren't together can, can be together for this one day. We try to intentionally bring them make photo books with them and do things for them to be able to connect and also their parents and a lot of the teens are in group homes and so we we try to have them come together and want to do that more regularly. One of the funner projects that we did was um, the visiting rooms. They have since moved but we we created a vision for for I think nine rooms in the end and kind of made up a list, an uh, items list for each room. Fireside sponsored one of them. And we were able to bring in um, just so many volunteers and, and so many people and be able to, to do, I think I have some before and afters for you. That was us at the Sibling Ties event. There's a before. So when kids come to meet with their parents, um, these are the rooms that they would, they would be in. And so we were able to come in and make them a little more kid-friendly. And while one, one volunteer was setting up, there was a visit going on. And a dad came in um, and was meeting his infant son for one of the first or second times. And he came and he said, oh my gosh, you finally have a rocking chair. And where before they hadn't had one. And so she got to witness the dad rocking his baby. And it's giving that warmth, having those experiences, it's, it's not just a material giving or setting up or painting. It, it is literally showing love um, and support to the office, to these families who use the rooms. Um, I, will, I will say, um, I think there's a couple more. Bobby, my son has come along to this. There's, we had like a little ribbon cutting with, with the office. Um, we bring our kids. Our kids very much come. We simply tell them what foster care is about, but he, he has come, and, and it's been a really incredible family ministry. Um, one of my last ones is Jonathan Reed, a big part of supporting current foster families, but also supporting future and, and the office is to make sure that we're trauma-informed. And so there are classes, there are, there's a lot out there, and Jonathan and Mike um, do regular trauma-informed teaching, which is invaluable for a lot of us. And then I, I included just a little note from Fireside for the last Last month, we brought in Ovidia and Andy Mans and, and a whole bunch of stuff, and that was one of the things that we um, were just like really happy to do. I love going, and I love representing Fireside. I love being able to talk. It's not blatant evangelism. There, we are going in with love and action, um, and it's been very well received. I'll say it's not always easy. Nobody who has seen the news would think it is, probably. Um, the bureaucracy is really hard and really frustrating. Kids being hurt and kids being put in risky situations and kids coming out of trauma and, and all of it is really messy. And often, I think, even in my own brain, 
it's like, I'm not gonna touch that. They're, they're, they're just making these nonsensical decisions. They, it's all this red tape, it's all this. But I'd challenge us to switch that thinking into, into this is why we should engage. This is exactly where the church should engage. We should enter into the messy and bring light. We should bring hope. We should be patient when, when there's miscommunication and when there's frustration and, and do our jobs well. Every time that we say we can do something or help in some way and do it with humility, the office and its leadership trust us more. We create sustainable systems and empower the community and especially the churches to meaningfully engage. It's that love in action. Having a strong community here enables us to go out into the world and be part of the community and places that need the love of God because we're in his ambassadors. I'm going to invite the band up as I close a little bit, but the reason my heart was circumcised last Sunday during the devotional I was listening to is because I'm Peter, right? For 16 years, I have deeply, deeply identified with the wonky, untrusting, shame-filled corners of Peter's mind and heart. I can both be overzealous and doubt-filled. I'm a walking contradiction. Jesus doesn't ever admonish Peter. He doesn't let him wallow in the deep shame. Remember, this is the same Peter who walked on water and in the middle of the miracle takes his eyes off Jesus. Even when he's out there in the middle Jesus doesn't let him stay under for just an extra second, you know, like, hey, see what happens? Instead, scripture reads in Matthew 14, 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught Peter. Jesus said, your faith is small. Why did you doubt? But immediately, immediately, he reached out for him. When Jesus comes back to life from the grave, he specifically wants Peter to know He knows and sees Peter's heart. He sees every dark corner and he still loves him. Still he draws close to him. What we learn from Jesus in his relationship with Peter is that we must do certain things. This includes three requirements. Confronting our own sin, humility, and sacrifice. Are you daring to hope big enough for God's love to be shown in our community? Have you confessed your sins and are able to walk and therefore serve from a place of freedom? Do you sacrifice your time and resources not out of guilt or debt and not because you think that the more you do, the more God will love you? Or do you sacrifice out of devotion and from a place of abundant grace? We can't stop at the resurrection. There is so much work to be done. Being on the front lines with a close-up view of what God is doing is life-changing. Nobody can feed Christ's sheep unless they love him. And when we love Christ the most, practical way of showing it is by taking care of his lambs, his little ones, and all of those that are his, his sheep. Love will teach us how to do it. Love will sign our commission, and love will ordain us to do the work. I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, we come before you in humility. Don't let the enemy use our sin to condemn us, but rather help us to confront our sins so that we can examine our love for you. Reveal to us how sacrifice of ourselves on your behalf leads to abundance. Help us step up to and into the hard places, including all the facets of foster care. Amen.